The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Ken Jacobs, chair of the UC Labor Center. And Ken, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you. UC uh, Berkeley Labor Center. UC, excuse me, UC Berkeley Labor Center. Is there a UCLA Labor Center? I know there was there a is. There is. I, let's see. Tim, can you edit that out? That's an example of what I mean by <laughs> um, But recently had an election, SEIU Local 1000, which is the biggest state local, and it's got approaching 100,000 members. I think it's at 96 or 97,000 members. It's got a lot of members. And they voted their longtime president, Yvonne Walker, uh, who's been president for 13 years, and voted her out in a very, very low town, a low turnout election. Uh, numbers I saw, early numbers I saw, said 7,800 voted. Uh, so my first question is, this is such a critical issue for union membership, but the, low, the turnout was so low. Do you have any take on that? What was your reaction to that? What do you, what do you think was going on here? Well, I think a number of things were going on in, in this election. One is just when we're thinking about percentage turnout, it's important to remember that there's, there's was it 90, uh, 96,000 workers who are represented by SEIU 1000. Mm -hmm. Not all of them are members, of, of course. Mm -hmm. But still, overall, it's it's a relatively low turnout election. And there were a lot of candidates this time. And so the vote really got split up in many different directions. And a candidate uh, who had a strong viewpoint that maybe isn't shared by most of the members was able to, to get through uh, because the, the, with the vote divided out in the way that it was. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as a, as a starting point, unions are democratic institutions. And so as we've seen uh, in general, Democracy has its real strengths and uh, things can happen in elections. Uh, it's, that's not unique to unions at all. And uh, it's a good reminder as in any democratic election, just how important voter turnout is to the outcomes. Do you think um, people knew that voters were educated about the issues before participating in the election? Or do you think there wasn't a lot of information about the individual candidates out there, is there any, were the communications as they normally are, I would think, in a union election? I, I, it's, it's hard to know exactly here, but I think that the, the candidate that won, um, he had a group of supporters with high intensity, and so they had a big incentive to turn out because they cared about the things that he was campaigning on. And okay. maybe some others thought, oh, things are going fine. I don't need to, to do something right now. So you know, that also, you know, we, we've seen that elsewhere where candidates who are maybe more on the fringe can have a strong voter intensity. When you say the, uh, you mentioned them, they're not all members who could participate. So the union represents people, whether they're members or not. That's right. By law, the union represents people. They're covered by the contract. If there's a grievance, yeah. they represent them in those grievances, whether or not they choose to join and pay dues. Uh -huh. But in order to vote in an election, you have to join and pay dues. Yeah. Oh, to vote in the election, you must be a member. Uh, okay. Do you have any notion of what SEIU's 
membership, actual membership, as opposed uh, I, to I do members? Not. No, okay. I, I do not know what that. Okay. Well, and one thing I can say is that uh, Richard Lewis Brown, one of his campaign promises, was that he was going to change that rule so that all members could vote, and I believe he referred to it as a poll, the elimination of the quote unquote poll tax. So your your union dues. Uh, he was going to eliminate that and allow all members to vote in future elections. Now, I don't know if that's something within his ability as an elected president uh, of the of that union, or whether that's something he has to convince a whole slew of other people to approve well, that. I assume that that, that 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 would take a change in the union constitution, and then the question is, with that change, is that one that would need to go to the members on a vote, or is that something that would have to go? At the least, it would have to, to go through the uh, it would have to go through their board. And so, uh, again, I'm not I don't know the details of local 1000's constitution, but it, it, I would be very surprised. It's it's almost certainly something he can't do unilaterally. The question is, is the is that an executive board decision, or is that something that would have to go back to the members? And one of his other uh, campaign promises was that he was going to cut dues in half on day one. Uh, he was going to cut the dues in half. And I'm assuming that would also be something that he cannot unilaterally do. Uh, and that would probably have to go to the board as well. Is that correct? Uh, again, I don't know the details of local 1000's constitution, but in general, those are the kinds of things that would have to go through the executive board. So I think there's a number of things that he campaigned on and promised that his, there's some question about his ability to actually do that. Uh -huh. uh, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. There is a governing board I saw a story that referred to 60 members of a governing governing board. So I assume he's responsible at some point to the board. He's elected by whoever voted in the election, but he's responsible to the board. It seems improbable that he could unilaterally uh, cut dues in half, cut the revenue. <laughs> We've mentioned this before, but I can't help it. It reminds me of the the Russian army in 1917. In order to get the troop get popularity among the troops, they eliminated the vodka tax which was their main source of revenue. So it's hard to see this actually happening, but, uh, but, but Tim's right, it's out there. It's one of the proposals uh, he's made. Another one was to eliminate political, political funding, political contributions, supporting candidates. And that strikes me as, a, as really foolish in the environment we have now in Sacramento where uh, money really does talk. Um, do you see any political impact? Of, do you see any sense of that? Any political impact? If he does that, SEIU pulls out. They have lots of boots on the ground, but maybe not a lot of dough in the campaigns. Overall, I'd say, and, you know, of course, the other big thing he talked about was stopping support for anything outside of the union and stopping their sort of social justice positions and funding and keeping narrowly focused in terms of the, the bread and butter part of, of Union, uh, of union work. And what's interesting is in recent years, especially among public sector unions, we've seen a big expansion of public sector unions seeing their members as whole people and recognizing that many of the issues that affect their lives are not ones they can solve at the bargaining table. Uh -huh. They can't, you know, the housing crisis affects union members, but union members can't, aren't, aren't going to win that at the bargaining table or health care or, issue, or issues of racial justice. And so, what we've seen is many of the unions in general and public sector unions and teachers unions really going out and bargaining for the common good and, and either sometimes bringing some of these kinds of issues into their bargaining in some ways, but really engaging in the community in ways that 
it are affect the, those broader issues that affect workers' lives. And this isn't new. There's a lot of history of this in, in going back in, in unionism in, in the US, but we've seen a big surge in this more recently. And when you poll union members, there's a strong support in general for doing that. Mm-hmm. And it also builds important alliances that, that unions need, which makes a big difference in terms of their ability to, to succeed at the, at the bargaining table, especially in the public sector. So many of the things that the, the new president is talking about are things w- that would that, you know, both cutting political funds and ceasing uh, engaging in the world out in, in this broader way are things that generally have not been a winning strategy for public sector. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of alliances, uh, go ahead. Uh, the new the new president, he's obviously not in office yet. He's not going to be in office for a while. But uh, Richard Lewis Brown, he has been pretty confrontational with the governor and came straight out and said, hey, Mr. Newsom, you're on your own in this recall and this is none of our business and uh, has posted some other things on social media that are pretty negative about the governor. Um, And that is not that usual among public sector unions who have to bargain with the governor and the governor's representatives for their pay. And I'm wondering if you have a sense, has this, is there a precedent here? Are there other folks that have been like that? Maybe in the good old days before my time, that was more of a standard thing, but I really- Well, I mean, you saw a lot of, I mean, when we've had governors who are hostile to unions, we have had unions take them on pretty strongly and pretty publicly because they've had to do so. Um, You know, we, we will see in this case how that, how this plays out. I mean, I, I, you know, and one of the other places where there's been a lot of discussion around this is, okay, so what does this mean in terms of the recall, uh, you know, him saying that they won't engage in or, or in, invest in. And, you know, I think one of the things that just saw the California Labor Federation voted to oppose the recall, not surprisingly, and really recognizing this as a, as a big threat to workers in California and to workers' rights in California. So, I don't expect this to have much of any noticeable impact on the overall recall. I, I think we're going to see a huge investment of unions, both financially and more importantly, the, the boots on the ground in terms of the door knocking and the phone calls to get people out to vote against the recall, because I, I think pretty big recognition among union members, how important this is, this is for them. You know, he's also talked about, um, uh, he wants a 21% salary increase, wage increase, and the ne- and the contract that he negotiates, uh, Yvonne Walker's negotiating the current one and the, the one that they're talking about now. The one after that, he'll be looking for a 21% raise. And that's another, that was another comment that got my attention because it seems so, it seems so out of, uh, it seems so improbable. Uh where did where did he come up with twenty one percent? Is that does that look real? I mean, in, in years and in good years, if you got a seven or eight percent raise, that's huge. Triple that, it just doesn't. It just somehow just doesn't compute very well. You get is that basically for the consumption of the potential voters? It was campaign thing, or I don't know what you're talking. Uh, yeah, about. I I don't have much to say on that one. Yeah, I think of the unions as being very monolithic. Uh, because in Sacramento, politically, the union's position is pretty well defined. And you know what the building construction trades is up to, or IBEW is up to, uh, what the Teamsters want. This is pretty well defined as you go forward. But this election, 
uh, it sort of threw that into a cocked hat. It didn't seem as it was a surprise, I think, all the way around. I think to people watching the election, it was a surprise. Not so much a surprise for those who were familiar with the 2018 election and Yvonne Walker's trouble in that one, where her lieutenants really were ousted, but she managed to stay in. So I think this has been percolating for quite a while. Um, do you have any sense of, has this been going on for years or is this something that came well, up? I, I think there have, there have been long-term differences among the membership in Local 1000 over direction. Uh, and so to, as a democratic institution, some people have you know, wanted to move in, into one direction and some in another. And I just think we, we've, we've seen this play out and here again, in this case, there were multiple candidates, the vote got divided out. Uh, so democracy can be messy. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Um, sort of standing back for, for a minute from SEIU, we, we've been talking earlier about um, this apparent shift in dealing with Prop 22 in the wake of Prop 22, uh, uh, a lot of the transport, a lot of the drivers are not happy, and they feel that positions have been shifted. The company has said, "May positions may be shifted from what people thought they were voting on and what the drivers thought they were voting on." Do you get any sense of that uh, at the labor center? Well, uh, the company spent two hundred million dollars to pass the the ballot initiative. They ran all sorts of propaganda through drivers' apps and onto consumers made some changes leading up to the vote that drivers really liked, including the ability to, before the, uh, someone picked up a, a ride, knowing where it was going and, and uh, having some of the information, better information to make decisions on. Uh -huh. And, you know, that helped move the vote. And then of course, as soon as uh, it's over, they change things back and start, you know, doing other things that give drivers a lot less yeah. flexibility. I, I think for look, people who've watched Uber and, uh, and Lyft over a long period of time, yeah. that isn't surprising. Uh, flexibility has never been real in that sort of sense that, you know, they, they, cha they change the rules constantly on drivers. And that's why there's been a lot of drivers who've joined the various driver organizations in the state and, and many of them opposed Prop 22. Uh, but, you know, they were outspent by a enormous ratio on the campaign. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, now we're seeing some of those consequences. Um, I, I think the important thing here is that drivers in other states and people in other states can see some of the consequences of Prop 22 and look at, okay, because you know, the, the companies have now gone from California to try to move something similar in other states. And so, and in, in some of those states, they don't have access to the ballot. And so I think there's more of an opportunity uh, with legislators to really show uh, what's, what's happened in California and what the value of their guarantee is. You know, we had done that, did an estimate early on when we saw the, the original text of the ballot initiative and they were claiming to have the guarantees of 125% of the minimum wage. And then we looked at it and said, well, it's 125% of the minimum wage, but not for a third of the driver's time. And they're not oh, reimbursing yeah. some expenses, but only at half the rate it really, the, the, the expenses are really incurred. And then for only two thirds of the miles. And then when you add it up, 
we came up with a, that is a wage equivalent of about $5 and 64 cents an hour. Um, but they did a good job of, uh, you know, spend $200 million. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's easy to win a campaign. I think there was one of the analysts. Don't tell Meg Whitman that. <laughs> but yeah. when it comes to issue campaigns, um, you know, there's all this, is it easier to get a, a yes or is it easier to get a no? And I think the answer is, Whoever spends the most money usually wins on the issue. Yeah, amazing. Especially when it's by that kind of ratio. So don't have any. can you speak to the PRO Act at all? So the PRO Act is being discussed at the national level. And uh, there are those who are saying that it's basically AB5 writ large. And there are other people saying, hey, it's, it's nowhere near that. Can you kind of walk us through the PRO Act and how it would impact California um, labor? Sure. So what the PRO Act does is a broad set of reforms on labor law. One of the most important things is it creates financial penalties for violating labor law. In the United States right now, there are no financial penalties for violating the law. The most you can get is to be owed back pay for somebody who was fired illegally during an organizing drive. And then you subtract out whatever they earned at any other job in the meantime. So companies just what they, a bunch of anti-union consultants figured out ways that the way you defeat a union election is to delay and delay and delay, hoping that the pro-union people just leave and then violate the law with impunity because it's not going to cost you much. So the PRO Act creates real penalties, has measures that will speed up union elections, makes it a world in which the workers themselves are making the decision in the election, not the employer. And in terms of, and that I think is, is, is key. And if those things are passed, I would expect we'd see a big increase in union organizing success in the state and a big increase in union membership in California and nationally. What the PRO Act does on the, uh, around the issue of the uh, independent contractors or, or on the issue of, of misclassification or classification of workers is it would apply the ABC test, which we have in California now around who's an employee employee or who's an independent contractor. So it's that same test, but it's only for the purposes of determining whether or not you're covered by the National Labor Relations Act. That's just only around the rights to collective bargain. It does it because this is a law around labor rights. So it doesn't affect employment law, it doesn't affect tax law, it's purely around who has the right to organize. Uh, and, in, and in that area, it would say workers like those in, in Uber and Lyft would have the right to organize under federal law. And currently they're banned from organizing because that would be price fixing, is that correct? That's right. Right now, uh, our, our antitrust laws that are never applied at companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook, who have big control over the economy, it, instead it tends to be applied in, in these kinds of cases where, because they're considered independent businesses, uh, any kind of bargaining that's around how much they're paid would be price fixing. Um, and so they're they're currently barred from organizing. This would the Pro Act would allow them to. Work. Just standing back a second from the sort of taking the larger view on unions, uh, at least in California, the. Union membership had gone down, was declining. And then as um, public service unions, public unions 
got more into effect, got entrenched, union membership started rising, basically a large measure, I believe, because public union membership was on the increase. But overall, do you see a resurgence in union membership? Uh, is, is union membership, even in the private sector as well, making a comeback? Since there are lots of wage issues out there, there's an income disparity, obviously, that's out there, wealth disparity out there. Is this providing an incentive for more, more robust union organizing? Well, we've seen in the public sector in California just in the last couple of years, some big union wins that 40,000 childcare workers were able to gain union rights. And then we've just seen uh, in the University of California, the graduate student researchers, another large group, was it 25,000, I believe? Uh, wow. Check those numbers. Um, but uh, we're able to, to uh, you know, just won an election. So we're seeing some big recent increases. Uh, the home, the, the childcare workers aren't public sector workers. Well, they are effectively, they're not employees of the state, but they are, they're, they receive state oh, yeah. uh, uh-huh. vouchers, right? Um, in terms of paying for the childcare. So that's, a, that's an interesting case. On the private sector side, there's, all around, there's a big increase in interest in unions and a big increase in support for unions. It's gone way up as people's view of, of corporations has also gone down uh, at the same time. Uh, we haven't seen that translated into big increases in union membership outside of a few sectors like healthcare, where there's been a lot of recent victories of, of nurses organizing. And a good part of that has to do with the state of our, our labor laws, as I describing earlier, which really make it very difficult uh, for private sector workers to organize. And that's what's behind one of the big pushes in the PRO Act. If, if you look at surveys of workers, there's a, a high share of workers want to be in a union. Uh, we just have a law that makes it very difficult for them to, to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, Ken Jacobs, thank you so much. Thanks for your time and taking the, uh, giving us the opportunity to chat with you. It's time for Capital Weekly's The Worst Week in California Politics. The Worst Week. Worst Week. Worst Week. We take somebody or something that's had a particularly bad week and uh, chat about that. And I'm joined today by my two special guests, Matt Rexroad and Paul Mitchell, both of whom are redistricting experts. And we figured if anybody knew about this, we'd ask them for some professional advice here, instead of just Tim and I just trashing everything. So Paul and uh, Matt, thank you very much. Thanks for having uh, us. Well, what prompted this was this string of resignations at the Independent Redistricting, Citizens Independent Redistricting uh, Commission of Santa Barbara County. And they seem to be eviscerated. And I'm wondering what happens now as far as that county's redistricting goes. Well, um, you know, the, it's interesting. We wouldn't normally be talking about Santa Barbara County redistricting with kind of a statewide audience, people who are tuning into the podcast to hear about kind of bigger statewide issues. But the reality is that in this redistricting cycle, we're seeing a lot more jurisdictions go to commissions or committees, taking the power of redistricting out of the hands of the elected officials, modeling a lot of what we see in the statewide redistricting process. And Santa Barbara, along with a handful of other jurisdictions around the state are going to set the norm for this idea of, can we use these citizens and commissions effectively um, to change the way redistricting is done in decades to come? And this commission definitely hasn't gotten off on the right foot. Um, 
part of it was probably the process they used to select applicants. You know, the state got 20,000 applicants from a wide range of groups with a lot of diversity. And this commission was formed with an applicant pool that one of the county supervisors said created a skewed pool that is old, white, and male. And from that, the first five commissioners that were selected for the commission included four white men and one white woman. And um, they had the opportunity once they were seated as the first half of the commission to appoint another six that would have that diversity. Um, They interestingly didn't have any Republicans either. Maybe it was just one Republican, but they failed, I think, to really get that diversity as they went back in and built their whole commission. And then since then, they've had this string of resignations. Um, how many is it now, Matt? We're like over six, six, six resignations. So uh, six resignations on a board of 11 members. I'm not a uh, I don't have a Ph.D. in math, but that sounds like more than half. Matt, does that change the I don't know. Do you, do you have any sense where that changes the deadlines for them? Are they going to be able to do this stuff or is this going to be on hold? It doesn't have it doesn't have change the deadlines at all for them. They're simply going through their process of gathering information and kind of setting up shop right now. But, you know, this is largely a thankless task. These people have met. They made about twice a month for a couple hours on Wednesday evening. And, um, you know, they're they're It's a big time commitment. I mean, they've lost people for all kinds of different reasons. One one gentleman moved away. Mr. Hunley, another person got called up on active duty. Um, some act. the first two resignations were early on in the process to allow the commission to reflect more of the makeup of Santa Barbara County, but it's a tough task, but they're, they're still on schedule to be able to get their stuff done. And that's as a result of the delay from the census, they can still get it done. But um, six resignations is, is a record. And, you know, Paul and I talked earlier, and I don't think we can, I don't think we can get to six counting all the other commissions that we've been observing or worked on, let alone all from one place. Yeah. I mean, we've had, um, uh, experience. Uh, Matt and I are both working in local government redistricting. Um, redistricting Partners is doing the redistricting for the Long Beach Independent Redistricting Commission, Oakland, Berkeley. We're doing redistricting commissions and committees throughout the state. In total, probably about 10 commissions or committees that we're working with, including Mesa, Arizona, where we're doing their redistricting with a commission. And uh, then both Matt and I are watching these commissions around the country. Um both of us have uh, work we're doing in other states, um, either advising commissions or advising nonprofits that are working in this arena. And it is, it's pretty unprecedented. I think that on one hand, you can say, well, a lot of these res- resignations were for different reasons. Maybe it's not something that's uh, kind of like some cancer in the, in the politics of Santa Barbara that's causing this. But the other fact is that we haven't seen resignations knock on wood on any of our other commissions. And this, uh, this commission has been kind of talked about in redistricting circles uh, for months as kind of being a commission that was kind of like watching real housewives sometimes, because they just didn't seem like they had their stuff together. A couple of the newspaper stories I read on this said um, the board was split board of supervisors is three, two. And that, the lines, the maps that the commission would come up with could decide who controls the board, board of supervisors, and the politics down there is pretty intense. Tim and I got a little bit of a close-up look at politics in Santa Barbara County a few years ago. That involved whites, Latinos, tribal politics, coastal and inland. It was pretty, it was intense. And this reminds me a bit of that. People are very uh, 
they're very politically engaged on it, or at least the people watching this are. Well, oftentimes people think of Santa Barbara and they think of the city of Santa Barbara, right? But they also have some, you know, the city of Santa Maria, the Santa Inez Valley, um, there's, you know, Montecito and Carpinteria. All of those communities are very, very different. And so um, oftentimes we tend to associate just that nice beach community around Santa Barbara, but it's that's not where all the people live. In fact, that's not even the largest city in Santa Barbara County. So, um, and we redistrict by heartbeats. We don't do it by how nice the city is. It can't get the commission together. Um, do they use last year's maps? I mean, if they can't get things together in time for the elections, the 2022 elections, well, I don't. what would happen? I've never seen that, but maybe you folks have seen that. Well, there have been plenty of examples where, where entities haven't been able to get their act together, where they've had to come up with all some sort of remedy to be able to make it happen. But this commission hasn't missed anything yet. They don't even have data yet. They, can, they have more than enough time to get this done. Uh-huh. Yeah, they'll get their act together, I'm sure. Uh, but um, there is in state law under the Fair Maps Act a remedy if the county doesn't get its redistricting done by December 15th, that's the current date, it might move. But if they don't get it done by December 15th, any member of the county, any resident of the county can walk into a a court and have the court take jurisdiction of the redistricting process. So essentially, if December 16th rolls around and they haven't done the work, then any member of the public can go have the courts draw the lines for them. So that's gonna be an interesting hammer for cities and counties. December 16th, we'll find out how bad of a week this was, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and you'll find out maybe it's not Santa Barbara County, but maybe it's some other cities and counties around the state that we find out didn't either do redistricting at all or didn't follow the right process and the courts take over their work. Fair enough. Paul Mitchell, Matt Rexroad, thank you so much for joining us today. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, Sean. And this is John Howard. We will see you next time around on The Worst Week in California Politics. And I hope to never be on this again. Yeah, we're inviting Paul next time. Paul, stop wearing those Capri pants. Hey, they're not Capri pants. Three-quarter shorts. Thanks again. Have a great day, guys. Yep, you too. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.